They call me the zookeeper. <laughs> My program is the air toxics and ozone precursor section. We call it the ATOPS. Inside my program sits a number of different monitoring technologies, all of which is named after animals. This is Jason Schroeder. He oversees the Air Toxics Program at the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment. Jason runs the zoo. Colloquially, we call ATOPS the zoo, given that we have, you know, the variety of animals in our care. We have the camel, we have the moose, we have the cat, and we have the emu coming. And then we're currently in the process of a division-wide contest to name the latest member of the zoo. On a hot summer day, I'm meeting up with Jason and his colleagues, Natalie Smith and Michael Ogletree, at a small park in the Elyria Swansea neighborhood in North Denver. Around us are homes and a playground, tucked among industrial sites and bordering Interstate 70. They are showing me the cat. We're inside the cat mobile lab right now. On the outside, we have a weather station that gives us wind speed, temperature, pressure, and wind direction. And on the inside, we have three instruments that are responsible for giving us our air toxics mixing ratios as we're driving. I'm talking with Natalie Smith, an air measurement scientist. Natalie is methodical and can tell you what every little dial, cord, or gadget in the van does. The CAT van stands for Colorado Air Toxics. She's showing me around the inside. And right now we have selected air toxics plotted, including benzene, toluene, xylene, acetone, and some other air toxics, and also hydrogen cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, and our wind direction. And then we also have a map that plots our geolocation as we're driving, so we can see hot spots during our route sampling. The van is like one of those large vans that people retrofit as part of the vagabond lifestyle. But instead of fancy throw pillows, this van is filled with scientific instruments and computer monitors. There is a small clear tube that pulls air from the outside of the top of the van into each of the instruments. In June of 2021, the Colorado General Assembly passed the Air Toxics Act that created a community monitoring program and provided funding for this van. It also defined four industrial facilities to be monitored, both at the fence line and within the surrounding communities. Our four required facilities are Suncor Refinery. Then we also have Phillips 66 Terminal, Sinclair Terminal in Henderson. And then we also have Collins Aerospace, which was formerly Goodrich Carbon down in Pueblo, Colorado. All right, so we are off, we are starting our route. For the route today, Jason and Natalie are driving around North Denver, an area known for poor air quality due to industrial processes and traffic pollution. So right now in the passenger seat, I have a dual monitor set up. I'm looking at all of our real-time data for our instruments. And then we also, on the vehicle, have a map that we're following. And this is our planned route 
for the day. In addition to the designated sites in the Air Toxics Act, there are also other industries in the area worth monitoring. We were still in a dust rail area. We're about on the wastewater treatment facility to our right. Right before they drive past a wastewater treatment plant, Natalie looks at the hydrogen sulfide measurement on her laptop. Hydrogen sulfide gas is very smelly. Think rotten eggs. It's often referred to as sewer gas. As they drive by, the computer shows a spike from zero to 400 parts per billion, which is the concentration of a pollutant in the air. For hydrogen sulfide, it's not really until we start seeing concentrations at about 25 times greater that there would be serious health concerns. But the spike is important data. What Natalie and the team are doing is establishing a baseline. So finding a hot spot or spike is meaningful, but it's also important to have long-term data collection in order to see trends. Back in the park, I'm sitting at a picnic table with Jason and Michael. You may remember Michael from the last episode. He heads up the Air Pollution Control Division. I think some of the challenge with communicating that type of data is that we don't know what a one-second spike of something means, like what the health impacts are of those short-term spikes. And even when we do do the, the measurement while we're mobile, it's something where we have to do multiple passes to even validate that, that what we're collecting isn't you know, someone driving by. Our team is on the cutting edge of collecting that data and analyzing it and then getting that out to communities. Colorado has started to closely monitor air toxics in disproportionately impacted communities through both mobile and stationary measurements. There is a national network of air toxic monitors across the U.S. supported by the EPA, but it's pretty sparse. Only 26 monitors in total. Colorado actually has one of these stations in Grand Junction, but it's really been up to the states to create their own monitoring programs. Here's Jason. We now have unprecedented resources and programs to establish these new air toxics monitoring programs, which is going to drive the change in establishing new air toxics regulations. Under a couple of pieces of new legislation, Colorado is rapidly building out monitoring for air toxics, including six stationary sites around the state, plus mobile sites, fence line monitoring, community monitors, and other tools in their toolbox. This is all to begin collecting enough high-resolution data to help make more informed decisions. Yet, this will take years. Here's Michael. The process is going to be a five-year process, and the first piece of that is taking these measurements to make sure that at the end of the five years, when we do get these proposed toxics air contaminants in front of the Air Quality Control Commission, that's when we'll be able to adopt the actual standards, when we'll be able to actually start implementing some of the policy. Our ambient network for national ambient air quality standards, we have about 50 or so sites. And so having that large data set allows us to to look at our ambient network and see what it looks like in different areas. But we just don't have that with a lot of these toxic air contaminants. We don't have measurements to be able to understand what a baseline looks like or even where we should be setting thresholds in regulation. 
The data is starting to catch up to the reality that many communities experience living in proximity to industries, highways, railroads, and other sources of pollutants. What's really pushed us is knowing that the sources are close to communities and those communities are heavily impacted by some of these pollutants. Really, one of the reasons we're a leader is because we're trying to be as protective as we can of communities who live near these different sources. I would also say there's a general public awareness of air quality in general, which is the driver at the grassroots level. When you have a population of people that are heavily aware of the environmental issues in their community, they can drive a lot. To make thoughtful decisions and policies that will truly help our society, it's vital to have the data. Without this information, we cannot talk about solving our challenges because we don't know what the specific problem is. Data in itself is important, but it's what we do with that knowledge that is of real value. For years, communities have been asking for help, sharing their stories or personal experiences. Now that we can start pairing that with data, we can see the full picture needed to make change. Change has been happening, but like most change, it can be incremental and slow. That's why it's important to understand how we got to where we are today by looking to our past. How did we decide to clean up our air? And are we making progress? This is Clearing the Air, the hazy future of our skies an eight-part series about the state of air in Colorado and how we are navigating this complex problem that knows no borders. My name is Kristen Uhlenbrock, and from the Institute for Science and Policy, welcome to season three of our podcast, Laws of Notion. Clean air, clean water, open spaces, these should once again be the birthright of every American. If we act now, they can be. We still think of air as free, but clean air is not free. And neither is clean water. The price tag on pollution control is high. Through our years of past carelessness, we incurred a debt to nature, and now that debt is being called. This is President Richard Nixon at his 1970 State of the Union declaring the environment one of the most defining issues for our country. We can no longer afford to consider air and water common property, free to be abused by anyone without regard to the consequences. Instead, we should begin now to treat them as scarce resources, which we are no more free to contaminate than we are free to throw garbage into our neighbor's yard. This requires comprehensive new regulations. It also requires that to the extent possible, the price of goods should be made to include the costs of producing and disposing of them without damage to the environment. Later that same year, Nixon went on to create the Environmental Protection Agency and signed the Clean Air Act of 1970, that created the foundation of air quality standards and regulations we know today. The 1970 Clean Air Act Amendment is huge. 
This is Jana Milford, Professor Emerita of Mechanical and Environmental Engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder. It set this framework for having health-based air quality standards that were supposed to be met across the country and that were supposed to provide a benchmark that if we were meeting those standards, um, we'd be breathing healthy air. And it turns out to be more complicated than that from a scientific perspective. We still have air quality health impacts at concentrations below the level of the standards um, for ozone and especially for particulate air pollution. But it got everybody moving. The Clean Air Act was a watershed moment for trying to rein in pollutants through government intervention. For example, one of the first things the government began doing was creating regulations around the automobile emissions, which drove the market to find solutions. Our cars of today are 99% cleaner from common pollutants than they were back in the 70s. It also inspired a whole generation to pay more attention to the air we breathe, including Jana, whose early research took her to Southern California. Oh, it was crazy bad in Southern California. Yeah, folks who grew up in the 70s and 80s suffered a lot from from air quality. I have friends who grew up in Southern California at that time and talk about not being able to go outside for recess or do their athletic competitions because the ozone smog was so bad. She got her PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania in 1988. Pittsburgh, where Carnegie Mellon is, was an interesting place um, in terms of air quality, too. It was really infamous for its air pollution problems from the steel industry following World War II, some of the really notorious air pollution episodes in the United States in the 50s occurred in in southwestern Pennsylvania. After finishing her degree, Jana landed a job advising Congress at the Office of Technology Assessment, where she got to work on a major amendment to the Clean Air Act. This was during President George H.W. Bush's term. No American should have to drive out of town to breathe clean air. And every city in America should have clean air. And with this legislation, I firmly believe we will. In 1990, the big focus, there were two of them at that time. One was the problem of acid rain that was really more prevalent in the eastern United States, where coal-fired power plants in the Midwest were emitting sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides that were ending up in lakes and streams in New England and, and the Adirondacks region of New York, as well as the southeastern United States. The other thing they did was try to help out places like Colorado that were struggling to meet the ozone standards and particulate matter standards at the time and added some sort of statutory requirements or teeth, if you will, for states to move forward with trying to meet those standards. In addition to the acid rain and urban air pollution that Jana mentions, the 1990 amendments included more oversight for toxic air emissions and the depletion of the ozone layer. Jana has had one hand in research and one in policy her entire career. In 1994, Jana first got appointed to serve on the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission a role she has held off and on for 12 years. Her experience helps her understand the relationship between federal versus state authority when it comes to regulating industries. You don't want to have 50 different states regulating or trying to set standards for that industry. So that's the role the federal government plays. 
states have a tremendous amount of work to do within the Clean Air Act. They start with having to do the monitoring networks and understand what the lay of the land is in terms of air quality, have to develop emissions inventories, they have to develop plans and use models to develop those plans. And then they have to do the implementation piece, writing the regulations or rules that Colorado industry or people are going to have to follow, making sure that the industry and, and the recipients of those regulations or the subjects of those regulations understand the rules, so helping them comply, and then the ultimate enforcement piece to follow up and make sure that compliance occurs. And then the state also has to sort of fill in the gaps from the federal regulations and figure out what more is needed locally in order to meet the federal standards. In Colorado, a place where that has come up a lot, of course, is the oil and gas industry. That's not a national industry that is equally prevalent across the board, and so it's kind of left to the states to figure out what needs to be done. Colorado has had on and off challenges with meeting federal clean air standards. Recently, parts of Colorado's Front Range were reclassified to severe non-attainment by the EPA for ozone after years of not meeting the standards. Initially in the Clean Air Act, the grade actually does tie into the level of pollution. If you were moderate, you were missing the standard by a little, and if you were severe, you were missing the standard by a lot. But the second piece of it is that as areas persist to not meet the standards for longer and longer, they get bumped up to those categories. So at that point, it's not that their ozone levels are higher than other areas that are in a lower category. It's that they've been non-compliant for a longer period of time. The second piece of it is that the Clean Air Act actually does have specific requirements that you have to implement, and those get added on to as you go up in severity. So with every bump up in classification, Colorado would need to find ways to get into compliance. For example, more industries, beyond the big ones like refineries or large manufacturers, could be required to get a permit. These are places like a print shop or a coffee roaster. Also, any business with emissions that wants to expand or a new one that wants to start could need to offset the new emissions being created. So that's a bigger permitting burden for the state. They have to permit a lot more sources. But hopefully that also comes along with a lot more sources doing more to reduce their emissions. And then the offsets notion is that if you want to build a new facility that's going to emit pollutants into the non-attainment area, you have to find somebody else to reduce their emissions by not just an equivalent amount, but a greater amount to more than offset that increase that you're bringing. The Clean Air Act is a complex law that relies on evolving scientific understanding. Some think it's not stringent enough. Others think it's overly restrictive. Some think it's unfair because it grandfathers in certain industries. Others think it kills jobs and stifles growth. But our air in the U.S. has gotten cleaner. EPA states that since 1970, the six most common pollutants have dropped by 78 percent. 
And while Colorado's air quality has gotten better in some areas, it still has problems. So to understand the problem, we need a little scientific background about what actually makes air pollution. The brown cloud. From Asia to the U.S., many of us have seen photos of people walking around in clouds of haze. Maybe you grew up with one of those historic brown clouds. Or you live somewhere today where it can still be an issue. Decades ago, it wasn't just Southern California or other major population centers that were dealing with smog. Denver had its own brown cloud of national fame. When the Broncos lost the Super Bowl in 1989, a sportscaster described Denver as not being number one in anything but carbon monoxide. People talk about the brown cloud as a thing in the past that sparked action on air pollution. But it still exists today in many places around the country and world. In regard to air pollution, I was already aware that there is ozone problems in, in the front range, and we just haven't gotten any better. And that's actually pretty frustrating to think, you know, knowing for that many years that we have a big problem that really impacts human health, it impacts our environment, we just haven't figured out the way to deal with it correctly. I'm Gabriele Pfister, but barely anybody really calls me Gabriele, so it's Gabi Pfister. Even in science circles, everybody calls me Gabi. I originally come from Austria. Gabi is an atmospheric scientist. She serves as a deputy director for the Atmospheric Chemistry Observations and Modeling Lab at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, located in Boulder, Colorado, often referred to as NCAR. Gabby's been at NCAR for 21 years. She gives me an overview of the science of air pollution and how a brown cloud forms. So a brown cloud is really the dark layer that you see. It is filled basically with different pollutants but not all the pollutants are visible. When we look at the brown cloud, there might be a ton of ozone in there, but we wouldn't see it. So what, what we see in the brown cloud is first of all particle pollution and nitrogen oxides. So that kind of mostly gives the brown cloud its color. Back in the 70s, 80s, when you know the brown cloud was really very prominent in the Denver Front Range area, uh, the composition back then was slightly different than it is today because back then we had also way more particle pollution still and way more nitrogen oxides. Today there is way more nitrogen oxides than maybe particles in there, specifically in summertime. We also often see this brown cloud because we have inversions. And that goes a little bit to, you know, the meteorology and the impacts between pollution and the weather. What we call an inversion is when the temperature at the ground is colder than the temperature higher up, which is reversed to how it usually would be because typically what you have... Gabby explains an inversion like a lid on a pot, or in this case, a city. The lid sits on top of the colder air, and because there is warmer air on top, it cannot rise. This keeps the emissions and pollution down at the surface, rather than getting diluted through the rest of the atmosphere. And then you, we start seeing this brown cloud. 
So the brown cloud is a mixture of particles and pollutants. Ozone can be part of the makeup, but it can also be its own problem. Ozone is not emitted, right? Ozone is a pollutant that is produced in the atmosphere from what we call precursor emissions. And these precursor emissions are nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds. And they come from a variety of sources. They come from cars and also from industry. There is a lot of oil and gas production. There is also just our daily activities when you run your air conditioner, when you run your furnace in wintertime, when you run uh, more your lawn. All of these activities put all these precursor emissions into the atmosphere. And then the other ingredient that you need in order to produce ozone, you need sunlight. Well, we have plenty of that here, right? So we give basically all this mix of emissions that we put out there. We give it enough time to just bake and cook in the sun and just start forming and forming more and more ozone that accumulates over the course of the day. Colorado struggles with ozone because in addition to a lot of sunshine, we also have some interesting topography. One very interesting phenomena in the Front Range is the upslope-downslope circulation. And so what happens is during the day, we have winds that can go from the Front Range up into the mountains. And that flow reverses at night when you can have the winds bringing the air from the mountains back down into the Denver Front Range area again. The dual feature of upslope and downslope winds means that the air pollution we generate in our population centers can be transported up to our forests and mountains. It also means it can begin to accumulate over days. Another important consideration is, how do we determine at what point we're measuring from? The scientific phrase is background air quality. When we talk about pollution like particle pollution, ozone, it's not that these are compounds that we humans formed, that are only there because we are there. I mean, you know, we shouldn't consider ourselves quite that important. There is a natural background because there is also natural sources of emissions. Just think wildfires. I mean, wildfires are now often also human-caused. But even back then when there were no humans, there were lightning strikes. So wildfires have always been part of the system. These background levels that come from these natural sources are much, much lower than what we experience in many of the polluted areas today. So just consider that background ozone, for example, before industrial time, maybe 15, 20 ppb. Well, now in a polluted day, we talk about 80, 90 ppb of ozone, right? So you can already see that humans made a significant contribution. Air pollution is local, but also it's not. All these pollutants can get transported over miles and miles and miles. So whatever happens upwind of us, we get our whiff of that simply because the winds are bringing that to us. In the same way what we are doing, well, it's a present from us to somebody downwind of us, right? So it's a give and take. When we look at air quality, we have to look at really a bigger picture. The science of air pollution is complicated as are the health effects and the policies. So throughout the season, we'll keep coming back to deepen our understanding.
It's probably not easy five months into a job to be asked to be interviewed on the mic. But Adrian Sandoval took to the challenge. I'm Adrian Sandoval. I'm the Air and Radiation Director for EPA Region 8, which is headquartered out of Denver. We manage really anything that touches on air. Adrian is approachable while also being no-nonsense. She grew up in Texas and Oklahoma and got her start in the oil and gas industry before moving into state government in New Mexico. I did a lot of field work, and I think it gave me a lot of insight for how you take kind of complex regulations and you break them down into pieces and you make them practical and understandable for people of different backgrounds um, and, and different kind of purposes. At EPA, Adrian's region is quite large and unique. It includes six states and is one of the largest by geographic scope, but it's also mostly rural. She oversees a complex labyrinth of regulations and standards, ozone being part of that, and one of the key challenges for the front range of Colorado. Big picture, if you zoom out, I believe it was the 1997 standard for ozone was 85 parts per billion. And Denver was originally non-attainment for that. And we've since attained that. So that kind of puts into perspective in some ways, like, we used to not even be attaining 85. We're still not attaining 75, and we need to get there, and then we need to get to 70. What Adrian is talking about is how we're both making gains with ozone, but also coming up short with the newer, lower standards. The Clean Air Act requires the EPA to review and update the standards every five years based on the most recent scientific findings. The standards have gotten lower as more research reveals what is considered safe for our health and environment. The most recent update to the ozone standard came in 2015, which is the 70 parts per billion that Adrian is referencing. However, since 2012, parts of Colorado's front range have repeatedly failed to meet the standard of 75 parts per billion set back in 2008. But there have been overall positive changes in the air quality in Denver at the same time as there's been a lot of population moving into the area and population inherently brings pollution with it. It's hard to kind of zoom out and see those changes that have happened over the long period of time. And we still have a long ways to go. In a lot of ways, EPA is in the oversight role. It is Colorado who is on the front lines of having to figure out what changes can we make to attain these statuses? Getting into compliance is done through a state implementation plan, or SIP for short. The EPA provides a menu of control options for states to use in developing their SIPs, as well as reviews and approves the plan. But states have the flexibility to craft and implement their own reduction measures, and they're the ones to enforce them. However, once a SIP is approved, the EPA can take enforcement action against violators. And members of the public can file lawsuits under the Clean Air Act. But as parts of Colorado struggle with air pollution, there is help, specifically in the form of money. There is so much money right now. It is so exciting. There is such an opportunity, I think, to make big changes and not just 
in the big cities and population centers. A lot of this money is designed to go out to more rural areas that sometimes can feel like they have been left out. So one of the biggest things right now is all of the funding under the IRA, so the Inflation Reduction Act, and then the infrastructure bill. There's multiple pots of money, billions and billions of dollars, precedent setting levels of money that are available to states and communities and tribes. Most of them have timelines, so we need to build the programs to get the grants out the door. Whether it's for the electrification of buses and buildings or air quality monitors, EPA is trying to get this money into communities. This past winter, seven Colorado local organizations received grants for monitoring. Community monitoring grants are really aimed at putting some of the air monitoring technology in the hands of communities. And so giving them that power and that understanding of what's happening where they live. And that's, you know, really powerful because it gives them information to make decisions, to advocate for themselves. EPA is continuously doing research to figure out, are there better ways to monitor things? Are there quicker ways to monitor things? Are there less costly ways to monitor things? Data is important not only to make decisions that protect people's health and the environment, but because it's how we monitor change over time. You know, the thing about air quality is it's a slow change. And so it's really hard, I think, sometimes, you know, human nature and I myself am generally an impatient person. And I want changes to happen quickly. And in the air quality world, What I find is nothing ever happens quickly. It's a very slow process. There are improvements that are being made, but it's slow and it's often so small that it's not necessarily noticeable day to day or sometimes even year to year unless you're truly looking at that data. Nothing happens with just more data. What matters is what we do with it, how we value it, how we use it to make decisions. And all that really comes down to people working together, whether that's people working for a government agency or a business, a research lab, or a community organization. Sometimes it can feel like from the outside, it's just this kind of big machine, but it's really this unique collaboration and working of so many various backgrounds and perspectives and individuals. And it's the people that are so special and what really make things work. I had asthma as a kid, pretty bad asthma as a kid. I can remember kind of the tail ends of the brown cloud. This is Ian Tafoya. He grew up in Denver. And interestingly enough, we used to burn our leaves then. We even had one in the back of our house, like a little incinerator box. And that was like common practice. And there was a while there where it seemed like air quality got better. And now it seems to be getting worse. With long, dark hair, passion in his eyes, and a presence whenever he enters a room, Ian is a well-known figure in the Denver area. He is the Colorado State Director for Green Latinos, a national environmental nonprofit, and he serves on the state's Environmental Justice Action Task Force, is a radio DJ, and just this past year, 
He took a run at mayor. He wears many hats. When I was like 14 years old, we moved from West Denver to East Denver, and it was a former Superfund site. From my mom's front yard, you could see a coal facility that now burns gas. And what I didn't know then was that there were hundreds of businesses violating federal environmental law. Ian got some of his early start in government. But while there, he began thinking he could make bigger changes from the outside. I got radicalized, I guess, into not going along to get along by the I-70 expansion and the impacts on the community. Like many major road construction projects from the 50s and 60s, they often ran right through low-income neighborhoods and communities of color, creating segregation and bringing pollution. Interstate 70 runs along the north side of Denver, cutting in half already struggling neighborhoods like Globeville and Elyria Swansea, where we were sitting earlier in this episode. It's a project that was constructed in the 50s through a predominantly immigrant community. It took away a large green space, a parkway, which many other communities in, in more affluent parts of Denver get to enjoy on a regular basis. And so people get to move in and out from the suburbs or traffic for industry through our communities, and we get the pollution. By the early 2000s, as Denver's population boomed, transportation officials began designing an expansion. They said that it would reconnect our communities. Um, we were concerned that widening it would result in more air pollution. Ian was staffing Denver City Council at the time when he first became aware of the planned expansion. I was like, man, this is like, just doesn't seem right. He didn't know the intricacies of the Clean Air Act at the time, or specifically how the Civil Rights Act can serve as a basis for environmental justice. But he did know that this project would add more pollution and burden to an already at-risk community. However, he is dedicated and a fast learner. I left my job at 28 years old, and I took my pension, and I paid my bills for four months, and I ran for city council in opposition to this project. And I lost. And that was hard. I can remember a couple times, like, waking up in the middle of the night, and I cried. I was like, they're going to build this thing. They're going to harm people. There were a number of lawsuits trying to block the project. Ian was part of a few, including one that ultimately reached a settlement with the Colorado Department of Transportation in 2018. The settlement included money for a health study, plus for planting trees along the highway. I cried in the car all day. Was this the right decision? And then if you go look at the paper, when they signed it and they had a thing at CDOT, the Department of Transportation, they're like, Ian Tafoya, noticeably emotional. It was a hard decision to make. And I also realized how little money it was in the end. $550,000 isn't very much money. They ultimately took many homes from near my mother's house a block away. People my mom had known and we had known for many years, at least a decade. People had lived there for a very long time. It all comes down to resources. But my feeling is if you invest in the community engagement, you probably have to spend less money on lawyers later. Ian recognizes that the struggle with air pollution isn't just black and white. It's really complicated and emotional and requires all parties to work together. But when there is a history of people not being treated fairly or not trusting one another, that can be challenging. Trust is a really tough one. I, I always find it that I have empathy because I've worked for the government. 
and I recognize how challenging it can be. And I also recognize there are people in the government who are pushing. This is like all about human beings. This is a hundred years of problems that none of us made. So stop taking it so personal. If we stop taking it personal and we acknowledge this is the baseline, then we can start making policy solutions. If you want to make change, you need to have friends. You're not going to make change with all enemies. It just won't happen. There is a strong history of division in our society, literally and figuratively, whether that's roads or politics or priorities. But the one thing that I think we can all agree on We all want clean air to breathe. And we want that for the next generations. It doesn't mean it will be easy. So when I see or hear about division, I also see an opportunity for empathy and collaboration. In our next episode, we'll learn more about the conflicts that exist and how people are coming to the table. But when people's health is at risk, Is compromise over conflict possible? Laws of Notion is a production of the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. To learn more, visit lawsofnotion.org. I'm your host, Kristen Uhlenbrock. This episode was written by me and Trisha Waddell, with help from Nicole Delaney and fact-checking by Kate Long. Sound design by Seth Samuel, with tracks from Epidemic Sounds and audio support by Jesse Boynton. For a full list of credits, check out the show notes. If you have learned something new, please rate, review, and share the podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next time.